Hello, and welcome to this episode of the ASIN podcast series. I'm your host, Nick James, and this week I talk with Eric Woods and Robert Scherzer about the quote-unquote new American nationalism. They ask, how are myths and symbols, or the contents of national identity, reinterpreted by populist leaders, and what makes these narratives successful in the present era? In doing so, they provide a powerful corrective on much of the current literature, which sees a unidimensional American national identity, which is broadly civic, with little to no ethnic connotations attached. So you might guess that they point out some of the multidimensional features of American nationalism, and especially these ethnic demarcations which fuel much of the content found in majority ethnic group discourse. Eric is a senior lecturer in sociology at the University of East London, and Robert is an assistant professor of politics at the University of Toronto, and we're very excited to have them here today. So before we get directly into the paper, let's take a minute and discuss where exactly both of your works fit in with the literature and what exactly your favorite methods are. Well, I guess both of us are very much influenced by our former supervisor, John Hutchinson, um, which means that um, both of us take broadly a kind of culturalist approach to understanding nationalism and related phenomena. Yeah, and I think even in this paper, I think we're trying to show how some of the nationalism studies literature and the school of thought that we're part of, ethnosymbolism, is actually part of a much larger school of sociological institutionalism. So we're we're both interested in culture and identity, but we're also interested in institutions, right, and norms and ideas. So I'd say we're broadly, like in the larger social science literature, ideational scholars and institutional scholars and social cultural scholars. And inside the nationalism literature, we're part of this kind of what we call a corrective school, right? Eric on national studies, where we talk about ethnosymbolism as kind of a third way after constructivism, but not quite crazy primordialism. Perfect. So that gives us a perfect backdrop into your ethnosymbolic account of the new nationalism in America and its comparative context, I guess. So could, could you summarize the recent paper talk you gave at the ASIN conference? Yeah, so um, taking some of those ideas that Rob just discussed, um, we thought, can this add anything to understanding the new populist far right, as mm -hmm. it tends to be called? Um, and in that sense, what we are trying to do with this paper is translate some of the ideas that emerge from um, theories of nationalism, what can make sense to help us understand populists and far right. And in that sense, we thought this could be a nice complement because... Uh, the dominant literature on uh, populism tends to take quite a structuralist view, and they tend to look at exogenous factors uh, that affect the rise of uh, populism. And so, yeah, and so, and what we, so we came, we're looking at that, and we think that a lot of the populism literature has been very successful in explaining the timing. So why are far-right movements emerging now as times of economic downturn after the Great Recession, you know, growing um, political alienation and views of corruption, whether it's, you know, with elites in Brussels or whether it's with uh, the Washington Swamp, you know, and then, or whether it's high levels of sustained immigration, as Eric was saying, these structural factors, populists do a great job of explaining the timing of, um, of emergence of populism on that front. But our paper really looks at why they're successful, right? So our puzzle was why are ethno-nationalist 
um, parties and leaders successful in anti-democratic initiatives in the hearts of liberal democracy, right? And for that, we turned away from the populism literature to complement it with nationalism studies. And we also wanted to understand, um, find some way of explaining the content, um, because we feel that um, the content of what a populist might use in his or her message to appeal to the broader population doesn't seem to just come out of the air willy-nilly as if it had never existed before. Um, uh, in our views, some of this has a legacy. And so we thought, if you solely take a kind of structuralist approach looking at exogenous factors, it's hard to understand that content. And that content can be important because it can also show the kind of direction that that movement might take. Um, so, for example, if a populist is focused on um, a particular religion or a particular uh, aspect of a territory or on the rural versus the city, um, you have to understand some of those internally um, historically constituted um, endogenous factors. Yeah, and, and part of what we tried to do in the paper is look at the U.S. case and actually join a line of scholarship that says the U.S. is not just this liberal, democratic, civic culture. It has a very strong tradition of ethnicity and dominant ethnicity, and particularly white, Anglo-Saxon, and Protestants in the U.S. who've been very powerfully and importantly institutionalized a whole set of myths and symbols that really define you know, what is the American creed and what uh, aspects of religion are American religion and how to understand the homeland and the golden age and these kinds of myths and symbols of America that give Trump and other nationalists in the U.S. quite a powerful symbolic set of resources to actually tap into to legitimize their movements. And so that's how we were trying to explain the success of new nationals in America, rather than just looking at rising immigration or the economic downturn as driving these things. We, we especially feel in that case, and we join, there's just a handful of, of authors, uh, half a dozen, that do say, and this is what maybe one of the bolder claims for a, an American audience, mm -hmm. that there is um, a core uh, pattern of myths and symbols that are you could refer to as ethnic myths and symbols, um, which have really been the kind of driver of, of ethno-nationalism in America. Um, and I, I know a lot of that tends to get missed because ethnicity is tends in the American situation to see as something that's uh, belonging to minority groups, but yeah. not to the majority. And so when Rob talks about um, this kind of core group, um, basically we look at and say, were there any legacies uh, put in place by the kind of core uh, settler group that emerged from England and came to dominate and define America, did they institutionalize some myths and symbols which continues to be the driver of ethno-nationalism today? Yeah, and what we're trying to show is we, you know, we can talk about it a little more if you want, but we did a data scrape of all the social communication and speeches from important leaders of the Tea Party, and particularly Donald Trump during his presidential campaign, and showed that what these leaders were doing, and particularly Trump, was tapping into these myths and symbols that had been institutionalized in the 19th century and reinterpreting them, rediscovering them, and reapplying them, right, in their campaign material in order to really mobilize a dominant ethnic identity of America, right, as white and Christian, right, instead against others such as uh, Islam or Mexicans as other groups that were threatening the dominant white ethnicity. And that was part of the codes and single signals that Trump were, was using that reverberated so well. And we argue in the paper actually explains some of his success, right, of why he actually garnered support from the 
silent majority, as he calls them. Yeah, so maybe for some of our listeners, it might be odd to think of American nationalism as having ethnic roots beyond the popular understanding of its civic basis. Mm. So to get that more out of the way, what are the symbolic resources of American nationalism? That's a really good question. And so what um, Eric and I did, right, is start, as he said, there's about a half dozen authors and scholars who've gone through and tried to figure out what is this dominant ethnic core, particularly Eric Kaufman's work or Roger Smith's work, where they're going through and looking at what Smith called the multiple traditions of American democracy and American culture. And we did this reading of the literature and looked at particularly mobilization in the 19th century and in the 18th century. And we had tried to identify... Um, the kind of ethnic markers that define all ethnic groups, right? Things like the origin of the group, right? The things like the homeland of an ethnic group, uh, the religious components, the golden age of that group, and as well, uh, something that's a little hard to put your finger on, but the creed, right? The spirit, the ethos of that ethnic group. And what we did is tried to map alongside some um, key um, boundary markers, yes. key, key symbols. Yes. Um, so... Yeah, absolutely. That's that's a very good point, Eric. So what we tried to do is try to figure out how we can think about these categories that define ethnic groups and look at the boundary markers, you know, using Barth and thinking about that. Things that were mobilized to actually define the group as a group relative to other groups. And so we tried to identify the myths and symbols of the American nation in those areas. And we kind of came up with a coding framework, right, to try and understand these. So I'll just give one example, and then Eric can maybe pick it up here, is the idea that, you know... Uh, if we talk about the origins of America, that it's rooted in this mythical pre-Norman Anglo-Saxon and English heritage, and that really Americans fulfilled their destiny, right, as true embodiments of the Anglo-Saxon uh, tradition through the revolution, right, and then the Constitution as a myth embodies this and really freezes it in time and captures the true American spirit. And those myths are then symbolized through things like the revolution, right, it's been revolutionary art, and things like the Constitution as this symbol of the wisdom, right, and the, as the marker at the beginning of the birth of the nation. And there's, there's many, and that's just an example of one, but there's many. A, a, a critical one that your listeners would probably be familiar with now, because mm. it's resurfaced so much, is this myth that there was a golden age in America, uh, of which um, in, even already in the 19th century, you had a lot of American intellectuals um, mobilizing a population around a sense that the true America, the place for the true Anglo-Saxon Protestant values where they could properly flourish is in the rural. It's it's in the rural frontier. It's not in the cities. The city was seen as a place where it could lead to the degradation of American values. Um, and in order to make America great again in the 19th century, vis-a-vis migration, principally Irish Catholic migration, um, was that you needed to return to this time of small towns uh, in rural America, uh, mainly uh, New England towns, where the best of WASP values could flourish. And in speaking about WASP, that gets us to the symbols. And symbols are key ways of distinguishing one group for another. And for your listeners who might think, I just, what are they talking about missing symbols? This makes no sense to me. Is this ethnic? Well, you can very quickly see how some of these symbols became key markers of who gets the right jobs? Mm-hmm. Uh, how how is entrance on universities work? Mm-hmm. Um, who gets into the country? Who gets into the country? And we have symbols like whiteness, uh, but within whiteness, Protestantism, um, 
the very fact that the English language gets institutionalized as the language of America. English is, surnames is a big one, right? And the changing of names, anglicization of names. Um, uh, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so, the, you know, this idea that America only has a liberal civic background, right? The idea here is to pull out, well, actually, in the 19th century, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were very effective in through a process of what's called ethnogenesis, right, of realizing their dominant ethnic uh, identity and then institutionalizing in really important institutions like the Constitution or like marriage within your own ethnic group or within the court system and the Constitution or even the presidency, but really critically, as we were just kind of hinting, in the immigration and citizenship regime, right? And so these became institutionalized and then at periods of hot nationalism throughout American history, these identities percolated up and were critical in shaping politics. I think one thing that's critical um, also, uh, thinking about uh, an American audience, an American readership, is Americans are very familiar with thinking about whiteness mm. and the way in which whiteness is institutionalized as hegemonic in the United States. Um, but whiteness, as we see it, is one component of um, this uh, pattern of ethnic myths and symbols, of which Protestantism for uh, various periods of the United States is also this powerful indicator which gets mobilized, uh, of course, against non-Protestants mm -hmm. and even against some types of Protestants like like um, Episcopalians for the longest period. So that's that's what we're trying to do. Whiteness is one aspect of this pattern of ethnic myths and symbols. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so fo following that, how do politicians evoke these symbolic resources, maybe on social media? So today, for example. So that's yeah. a great question. So one, of, so one of the things we try to do in the paper, so we take these myths and symbols that are in the 19th century, we codify them and try to identify them. And people often say, who cares? You know, when we're talking to people at our paper, they often say, like, that's amazing that that happened in the 19th century, right? How does Trump, A, know <laughs> that those things existed and then B, use them in a way that actually matters and evokes actual responses? And so one of the things that we talk about in the paper and drawing back to our method of ethno-symbolism, some of those institutions we were talking about, those act as carriers that bring these ideas forward in time. And they're not just uh, selected, right, by elites willy-nilly. They don't just invent these traditions. They actually structure them. They're embedded. They're deep in the American psyche. And so when they're used, people inherently know and understand them. So one of the ways, the classic example, I would say, in uh, Trump's campaigning, if you look at his tweets, and I've looked at many, and Eric's looked at many, and we got very tired of doing that over a period of time because it's a mountain of data, the, the, the central theme of his campaign, campaign of making America great again, right? Every politician in America uses some version of responding to what we have called the golden age, right? Of invoking this in their symbolism. And they often do this by saying, we need to return to prosperity. We need to return to power and greatness. Now, what Trump did is thread this idea of making America great again. He thread it with more overt um, uh, connotations of the American creed as a code of white American values. Part of making America great again was to bring that back into the public sphere. Uh, part of um, his making America great again was protecting what he called the Christian core, right, of the United States. And he would explicitly then say that, you know, there's this, in one great tweet he says there's this threat from radical islamic terrorism it's very real just look what is happening in europe and the middle east courts must act fast right so he uses this and says that we need interventions in these areas in order to protect american religious values in his statement on preventing muslim immigration 
he very quickly moves in to say we need to ban Muslim immigration because he says very quickly that Sharia authorizes such atrocities as murder against non-believers who won't convert, beheadings and more unthinkable acts. And he directly says that these pose a dangerous threat to America. So he is using the codes and signals that, we're, that we were identifying earlier on and saying America is a Christian nation that needs to be protected from these others. And so as we were saying earlier, part of that process is in his tweets and in his speeches he rediscovers, right, reinterprets and reapplies some of these core myths and symbols of American culture to reverberate with his population. I, I think something critical, too, in his statement about make America great again, um, it, what, which America? Hmm. Which America has gone into decline? Which America should be great? And here he could look at any aspects of America. And of course, many aspects of America are booming and have been booming. The West Coast has been booming. Aspects of the West Coast has not. Some cities are booming, some cities are in decline. But when he says make America great again, it's unbelievably structured by this myth of the golden age mm. where when was America the greatest? Just like the 19th century um, uh, leaders would have, populist leaders would have been speaking of, rural, small town America that's seemingly gone into decline. We need to go back to that space. It's no, when we say in a way he's structured by this legacy, it's no accident that he doesn't refer to cities, for example, because that's not where um, in this myth symbol complex where the true America is to be found. True America is to be found in what's now called the heartland. Yeah, it's it's it's, you know, in his inaugural speech, you know, one of the lines that really sticks out is this idea that he talks about the forgotten men and women of the American nation, right? And the fact that they now have a voice, so they are on the pathway to making America great again. You know, the forgotten men will be forgotten no longer. It's very, you know, what's often called fig leaf racism, right? To just really try and capture that he is selecting the aspects of the nation that he wants to mobilize. Okay, and that kind of brings me to, to a peripheral question to those points. So differing narratives of nationhood which rely on the same symbolic resources create obviously different perceptions of what that nation is mm. so what influences any specific narrative to become the dominant one that's a very good question actually so i think part of what we're saying is that what ethno symbolism offers is this idea that there are always multiple narratives and they are always competed uh, and contested right and so it's not that one dominant narrative emerges and then wins forever right i think part of what we actually are trying to highlight um, is that in american history we're not saying that there isn't a liberal civic lens right uh, particularly after the rise of populism in the 1920s and the institutionalization of quite racist immigration policies the rise of the civil rights movement, right, and the rise of the human rights movement largely started to displace that and a more liberal civic identity in the U.S. emerged. And so what happens in those periods is that the underlying core ethnic identities go in and they become embedded and they're still there, right? And they still percolate, they become everyday nationals and much more banal. And it's periods of crisis, some of those things that the populism literature that we've been talking about can reinstigate and give nationalist entrepreneurs space to start supplying different ideas. And that doesn't mean that any one idea is necessarily going to win, but some will reverberate and start to take hold. Is that? I think that's a good way of putting it. It's a, it's critical for a lot of people who might say, where did this come from? Why, mm -hmm. why is, for example, why is Trump suddenly using this, this language? Mm -hmm. um, it's not that he's been reading into 19th century America. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. But we're saying, 
at times, this myth pattern of myths and symbols can become submerged, but it doesn't disappear. Mm. It's what a lot of nationalism theorists talk about, banal nationalism. It becomes a part of the everyday and unremarked upon. Um, and then it's at these moments of crisis, which, as you said, the populist literature can speak about very well, that some entrepreneurs can pull this up. Yeah. But their elites themselves are also structured by this legacy. So it's a part of Trump's everyday as well. He doesn't have to think or read, what does it mean to make America great again? He's also a part of this pattern. So he can, without even thinking, mm -hmm. um, he knows that um, the golden age of America is based somewhere in this kind of mythical small town America where democracy and egalitarianism and Christianity flourished, for example. And often these myths and symbols are quite simple and quite uh, ambiguous, right? And so that's, you know, there's no one true narrative. And so that actually, I think, plays to particularly, so many scholars have shown that Lots of this populist rhetoric has been around for a long time with Buchanan and others in the United States and in, in Europe in particular, populist parties and right-wing parties have been around for quite a long time and gone up and down in support, particularly since the 1990s. Uh, but part of what's interesting and plays into Trump's strength is simple and ambiguous is his natural pattern of speech that he uses. And so he seems to have an innate ability. Steve Bannon once remarked that people don't understand the genius of Trump in terms of his ability to use social communication. And I don't know if it's so much genius as it is an ability that he understands how to mobilize and use these kinds of myths and symbols without necessarily being cognizant of the fact that they resonate with longer established ideas of American identity, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, th I think that's a good note to wind our discussion down since it looks like we're running a bit out of time. So before we absolutely run out of time, I'd like to ask you some general questions on academia to kind of move our focus elsewhere. So... Who has influenced your academic journey the most, and why did you decide to pursue this career? And what advice might you have for any younger junior scholars? I'd say Eric Woods influenced my <laughs> academic career the most. Uh, well, that's, it's, a, it's a good point. Yeah. That um, I, I think that, oh, so doing, a, for example, doing a PhD is in very many ways a lonely enterprise. Um, and you, you would have many, many, many late lonely nights, but... I think, and speaking with others who've gone through the process, um, it's critical to find a network of scholars mm. so in some way you can feel like you're, you're a part of something. Um, even if it means that you just find someone to work alongside, your desk is near them, so mm. you, you don't feel like you're doing it along. And in a way, they push you too. Uh, I, I can remember, um, so Rob and I did our PhDs together, and I can remember... Um, feeling like I ought to get into the office to get writing because mm. I knew he was going to be there already. Yeah, it was who had to make the first cup of coffee in the morning. Exactly. Right? And then, yeah. That was a... Someone you can turn around to and, and speak about ideas with. Someone you might publish papers uh, yeah. so, uh, with. And I think that's, you know, so in a collegial sense, right, colleagues always influence your work. On a more, you know, like uh, intellectual tradition, I, do, I think, as we said, we are quite both, I think, quite influenced by the Ethnosymbolist School, Anthony Smith and John Hutchinson, uh, in particular Hutchinson's work as our supervisor. But, you know, each of us have different offshoots in our own scholarship. Eric's more of a cultural sociologist, I think, and I'm more of an institutionalist who does courts and law. So we have our own traditions in that regard. But I think in the nationalism school, it's definitely, I think, firmly rooted here at the LSE in the tradition of scholarship at the LSE, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and even, you know, from John Burley having to bring more historical and comparative understanding of the role of the state, all, you know, the people we studied with here really were influential, I think, in our thinking. I, I think, too, I mean, all along the way, you whatever journey you may take in life, um, you're very much influenced. Uh, there's there's people who can play a critical role in your life, mm -hmm. and I would say, 
it's working with others that did that. Um, I felt like the supervision um, here was great. And it, when I went away and worked with others, I tended to very, be very much influenced by, um, um, by other mentors. So I think it's critical for students, if they're considering a PhD, um, don't just apply. Go and meet who's going to be your supervisor. Ha have a sense of, are they going to have time for me? Um, are, are they going to be inspiring? Are they active? Will I be able to follow their work? Because it's going to be very important for you mm. as you go through the journey. Yeah, you know, um, one of the things is that when you become a professor, in quotation marks, is you have many students come in throughout and say, you know, I want to apply for graduate school, or, you know, you give talks even on how to go to graduate school. And one of the things I always tell uh, graduate students about your intellectual tradition, where you come from, is that, success, right, in academia, I think, requires this idea of collegiality and learning the professional side of how to become an academic. That's a big part of graduate school. The other side is pure logistics, right? You have to meet the people you're going to work with, but you big thing is funding. You, you actually need to be able to be free to actually do your work and actually work on not worried about whether you're going to be able to eat or live in a place, right? And so that's a really important kind of thought in thinking about the logistics of uh, where is when you are going to be most successful. I would think, too, um, that the PhD is the easy part. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can speak as uh, we're both still early career. And um, when you enter uh, an academic post, um, you, you get a million things thrown at you, which you maybe were ill prepared for. And you suddenly have to be even more productive with your research. Hmm. And so it's if you're going to enter this profession, it's being aware that you're going to have to keep up this grind. There's there's no point of arrival. I guess you, you need to love it for some reason, um, because I can say now after five years being done the PhD, I'm still very much in the thick of that um, and probably will be for quite some time. So it's it's a choice to make not for money and not for um, I, I don't know, not for money, I guess it's to um, you've got to do it out of passion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I want to thank you both for uh, taking your time to do our podcast. So that was a fascinating look at the different symbolic repertoires of American nationalism. I hope you've all had a great summer, and I also hope that you tune in next time to the ASIN podcast.